0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, It was you who led out and brought in Israel. And Yahweh said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before Yahweh, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was thirty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned forty years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, And at Jerusalem he reigned over Israel and Judah thirty-three years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft, to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold, and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around, from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that Yahweh had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamwa, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of Yahweh, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And Yahweh said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, Yahweh has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again, and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of Yahweh, he said, You shall not go up, go around to the rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then Yahweh has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as Yahweh commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and this is my show, episode 755 to be exact. Today is Sunday, November 12th, 2023, and that was 2 Samuel chapter 5, where David is finally anointed king over all Israel, not just Judah. Then it says he's 30 years old. Wow. 30 years old. Wait, no. Is he? Is he? Isn't he? I don't know. He's a young guy. He's relatively young. What we do know for sure, and we'll get back to his age in just a second, but what we do know for sure is this is some good old-fashioned toxic masculinity right here. This is like those action flicks from the 1980s that were just over the top, in my view, in my opinion, except maybe they're not, right? Maybe of a piece with all of this hubbub, In our day about toxic masculinity is the fact that a lot of men, not all, certainly not all, but a lot of men have thrown in the towel on being masculine. They've just let themselves go. Or if they're young men, they've been conditioned, they've been brainwashed into being rather limp-wristed and effeminate and weak, to put it quite simply. They've been convinced that it's toxic for a man to be assertive, for a man to be capable of violence, and I don't mean that we should glorify a man just being violent for violence sake no that's wicked that's evil but a man should be capable of violence so that for instance he can protect his family from bad men he can protect his friends from bad men he can protect his community or his state or his nation from bad men who do violence just for violence sake here we've got david Being anointed. And it says David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. So actually, he's not 30 when he is made king over all Israel. It would appear he is just about 37. And oh, by the way, I just turned 37. So that is to say that David became king over all Israel at about my age. He was King in Hebron over just Judah for seven years and six months, which is to say just a little over 37 and a half is when he became king over all Israel, because then that's what happens. You know, his reign in Judah specifically, that comes to a close and he becomes king over all Israel and Judah all at the same time for an additional 33 years, 40 years in total. So more of his life ends up being in the kingship than was spent prior to ascending to the throne. But the Jebusites, who are these guys? They say, no, you will not come in here. David cannot come in here. (laughs) He comes in there. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah. You think you're going to keep me out? Try again. Not so fast. Oh, The blind and the lame will ward me off? All right. Hey, guys, I want you to go up this water shaft and uh, attack the blind and the lame up there. And they do, and they win, and they take the city. And now it's David's city. It's nickname, what he likes to call it, is his city, and he builds it up. And it says he becomes greater and greater for Yahweh, the God of hosts, is with him. What's interesting, too, is you have Hiram, king of Tyre, sending messengers to David. So they strike up a dialogue, the two of them. And they also are going to exchange goods, as in cedar trees and the carpenters, who are good at working with the cedar tree wood and also masons. And these alike are going to build David a proper house. So mighty fine of Hiram, king of Tyre to provide these things for David. But it says, verse 12, David knew that Yahweh had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Which is to say, David has the right mindset on this. He doesn't just have the power and he doesn't just have the authority. He also has the right attitude, which is that God has established him here for the sake of Israel. But then, more to the point, why is Israel Important because Israel is God's people. This is for the sake of God's name. And then subsequently, this is for the sake of the people that he has called his people because they represent his name. His reputation is all bound up in this people, Israel. And then insofar as David is serving this people, Israel, that is God's people, God is blessing him and is with him, and he prospers, he succeeds. He is doing well. It says in verse 13, something that ruffles feathers among the feminists and the egalitarians in our day, David took more concubines and wives. How many more? It doesn't say. But he took more. He already had seven after he sent for Michal and had her returned to him. He added at least his seventh because he had six sons by six different women during the two-year span that he was king in Hebron before the death of Ishbosheth while Ishbosheth is still alive before his 2-year reign comes to a close David sends messengers to him and says send me my wife give me my wife Michal back so that makes at least 7 but now he's got more and here are some more sons and daughters as well being born to David in Jerusalem but then you have the Philistines. The Philistines hear about David being king over Israel. He's been anointed king over Israel. And what have I said before? As we're going through First and Second Samuel, I've said, and also with the judges, when Israel gets it together and the Philistines hear that Israel has it together, it's like the bully on the playground who sees the kid that he picks on with a new toy or some lunch money, or wearing some new sneakers, looking like he's confident. And the bully on the playground is going to come over and take those sneakers, take that lunch money, take that new toy, rough him up a bit just to let him know, no, no, no. You think you're getting a little big for your britches? I'm going to take you down a few notches. And the Philistines come up. All the Philistines come up, and they search for David. David hears about it, and he goes down. And there's enough peril here. There's enough danger. And there's enough piety on the part of David that David asks, God, shall I go up against them? Will you give them into my hand? And God says to him, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And so he goes. And what happens? God gives the Philistines into David's hand. They even leave their idols behind. And David and his men carry those idols away. What are they going to do with them? Hopefully melt them down and turn them into coinage or something. But then the Philistines come again, verse 22, and they spread out in the valley of Rephaim. David asks God again. And this time, and it's a good thing David asked, apparently, this time God says, you shall not go up, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And then what's happening? Verse 24, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then Yahweh has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as Yahweh commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer, which is to say that he was successful yet again. Two battles, two instances of the Philistines coming against David and Israel, and both times, albeit albeit in different ways, right, in different kinds of answers to the question of will you give them into my hand, nevertheless, the Philistines are turned back and defeated. And this is good. Our sensibilities recoil, and they have been conditioned to recoil because the academic elites and the ruling class have for the last century or so been trying to re-engineer our sensibilities in the West, in particular, to get us weaned off of seeing war as glorious in any respect. This is glorious. The academic elites and the ruling class trying to pursue still the internationalist vision of no more war, world peace, the brotherhood of mankind by human ingenuity, being accomplished by our own wisdom, by our own cunning, all they get is weak men. That's what it produces. It produces weak men who are not just unwilling to fight. They're also unwilling to provide for families and they're unable, (laughs) they're incapable of leading families and leading communities in a sufficient way. But that's because After a fashion, they're conditioned to suppose that this is bad. This is bad to defeat your enemies. It's bad when you win. Why? Because that proves that you're the oppressor. Everything's been put into the Marxist classifications of oppressor versus oppressed. Winner and loser is just code for oppressor and oppressed. But then, as I've pointed out before, the big problem, theologically, with that way of looking at things is that ultimately that casts God in the role of the worst oppressor in all history. God always wins, and God is the stronger, and that does not mean that God is an oppressor and that every sinner who pays the consequences for their sin and their folly, every people that gives themselves over to folly and wickedness and degeneracy and then suffers for it is the oppressed. No. No, no, no. We have to reject that. We have to be clear on that. And while we ought not to love violence for violence sake, we should appreciate the appropriate application of deadly force in the context of law enforcement, for one thing, self-defense for another thing, and lastly, finally, national self-defense, which is war. Appreciate the appropriate role of deadly force and the capacity to deploy deadly force against an evildoer. Because without that, there is no sufficient or wholesome restraint on evil. There are people who want to find less than lethal solutions, final solutions for the problem of restraining evil, and they do it in a godless vacuum. And what do they come up with? They come up with very manipulative and ultimately easily twisted and corrupted and perverse. abused mechanisms that just amount to abusing people's ability to reason, ability to make decisions for themselves. And then that feeds right back into people not being capable of governing themselves. Men being, once again, on that front as well, incapable of leading families or their communities or in their churches, in their states, in their nations. We need to know that that is not okay and that it is good What God is doing in blessing David in this context, as he is now king over Israel for 40 years total, he's going to be king seven and a half years in Hebron over Judah and another 33 years over all Israel, including Judah from Jerusalem. But this is a good thing that God is blessing him with victories and with a certain kind of peace, the kind of peace that you have with the king of Tyre, wherein You establish some dialogue, you have conversation back and forth, you're receiving cedars and carpenters and masons, and you're getting a house built. I would argue also that there is an inherent goodness to David multiplying his offspring. There's an inherent goodness to that. It is in and of itself good. What happens subsequent to that? Does he do a good job of raising those children? That's an important question. It is. But the very fact of having children is part of the sign that David is with God and God is with David, that David is blessed. He has all these kids being added to his household. That's presented as a good thing, as a positive, as a blessing. Even with regards to his taking more wives and more concubines in Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, that's presented at least, or at worst, as morally neutral. But I would say that I skew towards, I lean towards that being presented as yet another proof, another sign that he is being blessed. The check is that it's in the law of God that a king is not to multiply quote-unquote many wives to himself. Why? Because they're going to lead the king's heart away from Yahweh God they're going to lead his heart away. He's going to be so preoccupied with all of his wives that he doesn't pay any attention, say, for instance, when the Philistines come up. He doesn't ask God, should I go up against them? Now, David, you might say, is probably taking too many. He already took too many just to even have two. But then herein lies the question. With the rest of the context of that passage, it says also that a king is not to accumulate much gold and silver, or many horses, but then how many is too many? How much is too much? It doesn't say, all it says is not too much. And I would argue that when the reason is stated in the context of not too much as being those things will become all-encompassing for his affections and his attentions, and he won't have any attention and affection left for God, the test is, is adding any more at this point drawing your heart away from God? That's the question. In the context of 2 Samuel chapter 5, there is no indication that that is what's happened. That is what is happening. God is still with him. And so I think he's probably fine at this point. However many it is, I think he's probably fine at this point, even if it gets to be excessive later on or for other reasons than just too many. It's Oh, wait, wait a second. That one, she belonged to somebody else. Bathsheba, she was already Uriah's wife. You can't have her. That's not acceptable. You don't do that. That was what got David into major, major trouble. And that's when God gives him a disciplining. That's when there's a punishment for David and when Nathan the prophet confronts him. But we'll get into it. Soon enough, we will get to that part of the narrative, that part of the story of David For now, let's get into some other more current topics. For starters, I have been engaging with some of the followers of Matt Frad, Catholic podcaster. I've been engaging with some of them on Instagram on a post he made recently about a Protestant who had converted to Catholicism, who wrote to him, asking that, cradle Catholics, that is those who are born into a Catholic family and they grew up Catholic from little on up, it's all they've ever known, that those Catholics be patient with the Catholics who have converted more recently in their adult life from Protestantism with regards to Mary. Mary being regarded very differently among Roman Catholics than she is among Protestants. Mary is referred to not just by Roman Catholics, but also by Roman Catholics, most notably, probably most familiar to us in the West. They refer to her as Mother of God, Mary, Mother of God. They'll also do the whole Hail Mary thing where they'll say a certain number of Hail Marys, and that's part of how they do penance. Our Fathers and Hail Marys and that rote repetition Counts for something in Catholic practice, but I've been engaging just a little bit here and there over the last week on this post by Matt Fred, where I perhaps mistakenly, perhaps rudely, commented just tersely and bluntly: "Mary is not our mother. No, <clears throat> Mary is not our mother. That's not a thing." And then. What has happened, right? Matt Frad followers, Catholics, have commented and they've said, oh, but she is, but she is. And here's a brief reason why, or here's a brief encouragement for you to just pray about it and in time you'll see. And in some cases, some of Matt Frad's followers on there have been remarking on text that the Roman Catholic Bible includes. And the Protestant Bibles don't. My ESV does not include these books. And so that back and forth and some references to, say, for instance, Maccabees have caused me to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole, searching, okay, what about that, right? Refresh my memory, internet. Why is Maccabees not in our Protestant Bibles and how should we think of it? What are the arguments? Well, that rabbit hole, I'll just share with you a little bit of the findings of that I thought interesting. From Quora, this question why were the Maccabees books excluded from the Protestant Bible? Six years ago, had a reply from a James Ho, Catholic who teaches catechism, RCIA, and prayer classes. He is an author with 30,000. 400 answers and 18.5 million answer views. So quite a lot of attention James Hoff has received for his answers on Quora. But here is his answer, the Catholic answer, a good Catholic answer for why Maccabees are not in our Protestant Bibles. He writes, the reason that gave was they were not in the Masoretic text. I think what he meant to say was the reason they gave Protestants, that is, the Protestants who removed Maccabees, the reason they gave was they were not in the Masoretic text. The most ancient form of the Old Testament Bible that we currently have is the Greek Septuagint, which was the translation that the rabbis made for the Alexandrian library. At that point in history, everybody in the civilized world spoke Greek, and that is what the Jews used throughout the world except in the temple in Jerusalem. They stayed with the Hebrew text, and at that point in history, Maccabees was one of the books which was only found in Greek, the deuterocanonic books. As it happened, Martin Luther, God bless his soul, tried to throw all the deuterocanonical books out of both Testaments because he disagreed with their theology. He called the Epistle of St. James an Epistle of Straw because he disagreed with what they were teaching. Of course, Martin disagreed with nearly everything that the Catholic Church taught, but I digress. Nah. Not quite. Not quite, James. That's not entirely fair. In fact, that's not fair. (laughs) He was a reformer. He was trying to get the Roman Catholic Church to reform. He wasn't trying to abolish the Roman Catholic Church, just to be very clear. Back to James Hove. The other Protestant reformers, and he puts that in quotations because he finds it dubious, put them back in their Bible. So the original Protestant Bibles, puts that in quotes as well because he doesn't regard the Protestant Bibles as Bibles apparently, contained the deuterocanonical books of the Old Testament as an appendix to the Old Testament because they were historical and of good moral teaching for the faithful, but they did not consider them up to the same standards of the proto-canon. Finally, it was not the Protestants that threw them out. It was the printers who saw an opportunity to save money by not printing the appendix. The original King James Version contains them, as do other Protestant Bibles of that era. So that's interesting, right? That's an interesting answer. And I would like to do some more delving into this rabbit hole personally, and I'll bring you more results as I do continue down this path of engaging with Matt Frad's followers on Instagram. But for now, a couple of thoughts occur to me that I can share now. For one, the reason given being that these books, these deuterocanonical books, were not in the Masoretic text, I I don't think that's a bad reason to say we're more convinced that this is canon, and here's our reason. The Greek Septuagint can be useful and still not necessarily the best authority or the final authority or the only authority on what should be included in the canon and what shouldn't. So that's the first point that I'll make. The second point being that I would agree, actually, with those who would say these books are important books that we should read and we should ponder and we should consider. They can be important works without being scripture. So I don't think that it's a situation where it's all or nothing, like Protestants should be afraid of reading the Apocrypha, as we call them, those books that were left out. Tobit, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, the Book of Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, Letter of Jeremiah, additions to Daniel, additions to Esther. I don't think we should be afraid of reading those things, but we should take them with care. We should read them and be careful that if they were dubious in their authorship or in their authenticity, we're not necessarily grafting them in and saying, ah, yes, these are scripture. The trouble I have with Roman Catholics lecturing Protestants about what should and shouldn't be regarded as authoritative canonical books of scripture is particularly when the Protestant versus Catholic debate is at the center of the dispute or the reason why we're even talking about it in the first place. There's a lot of additional authority that Roman Catholics give to even just tradition, just the tradition of the councils, the decisions of popes, what popes wrote and said at various times, what councils decided at various times. Again, as with the apocryphal books, I don't think that it's an all or nothing thing where you don't pay any attention to the councils and you don't pay any attention to what various leaders in the church before the Protestant Reformation had to say. But then the Roman Catholics and myself as a Protestant, many Protestants, all Protestants who really have thought about this and looked into it, Where we disagree is how much authority to attribute to these other sources outside of the scripture. So Roman Catholics are much more comfortable assigning great authority to even the present church, the current church, and the historical church, much, much more authority relative to the scriptures than Protestants are. And Protestants placing such a high emphasis on the authority of scripture, the scripture being sola scriptura, the only infallible, inerrant authority for Christian life and doctrine. That is where Roman Catholics and Protestant Christians disagree. But again, as I said before, it's not solo scriptura, and that's as I have been explaining to the Instagram Catholics on Matt Frad's page. That's important to recognize here. It's not scripture is the only authority or that you should never read anything except for the books that Martin Luther or the other reformers agreed are definitely scripture. But it is to say, when you read those other things, you are not assigning them the same weight as you would. What you're sure that you're sure that you're sure is scripture, is God's word. For instance, for just a brief example, just because books that we regard as scripture, as Protestants, make reference to books which are in the Apocrypha for the Roman Catholic Bible, you know, that doesn't mean that those books being referenced and quoted are necessarily scripture. For example, for a proof of why this would be the case, or why you don't necessarily go the whole way in saying they're scriptural, they're all scripture because they were quoted and referenced. Paul the Apostle quotes Greek poets, and that doesn't mean that the Greek poets he was quoting suddenly become authors of scripture, or that their works, their written works, were scripture. So you have to be careful that you don't go so far in supposing either A, because we should take care of these things, just throw them out. They're worthless, they're totally of the devil and bad, and they don't contain any useful information. That would be a mistake. And I believe that's a mistake that many Protestants have made, and I don't agree with it. On the other hand, you don't have to go the other way, full hilt, full tilt, and say, because these have some value and some worth, and because they're referenced, therefore they're scripture. Or because Catholics at various times, or even the Eastern Orthodox Church, or the Coptic Church, or fill in the blank Church, just because those various traditions have included them in their canon, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were right to, or that they should have. I mean, Roman Catholics don't find it to be a credible reason to just give everything over to the Protestants to reorganize the Roman Catholic Church today, just because there's a lot of Protestants today who say, well, we don't find these books to be sufficiently uh, (laughs) proven to be scripture. You know, if we get a simple majority of Protestants relative Roman Catholics, will we then say, ah, see, see, now we're right. We weren't right before when you guys were in the majority. Now we're right because we're in the majority. Of course, that's just nonsense. That's not how it works. So everybody probably should read, first and foremost, the books that everybody has agreed are scripture for thousands of years. Start there. And I don't think there's any harm. If the Catholics get in a tizzy because some of their pet distinctives aren't supported (laughs) in the books that Protestants still retain in our canon, what are you saying, right? Are the books that we've retained not regarded as scripture by you? Oh, no, they are, right? They are regarded as scripture by you. So we are reading scripture, and you feel like we're leaving out important things that would justify your position. Okay, noted. I would say after we've studied all of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it would be good to check out the Apocrypha and see, are these things so? Let's be Bereans about it. The Berean Jews are commended in Acts for being of a more noble character than the Jews of Thessalonica. Why? Because they checked scripture. They searched the scriptures daily to see whether the things Paul and Barnabas were teaching were so. That's one big difference, again, between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Protestants actively encourage searching the scriptures to see whether the things being claimed are so. Roman Catholics tend to get a little bit bristly about that, like, ooh, you're Undermining the authority of the most holy Roman Catholic Church. And now you're in big trouble. Meanwhile, the Protestant, a good Protestant, is going to say, I'm not trying to undermine any rightful authority that God has instituted, but rather you may have usurped some of these positions that should be established by Scripture, by the biblical text. And oh, by the way, you should be up to snuff with the author of the book of Acts who commends the Bereans for being of a more noble sort. You should be relating to me when I search the scriptures to see whether what you're teaching is true. You should be commending me as of a more noble sort instead of sneering at me. But then there you go. There's the last 500 years of the history of the church in the West as pertains to Protestants and Catholics. One side maybe gets carried away on a certain thing. And then the other side says, hey, let's cross-examine that. And before you know it, everybody's all upset with each other and talking past each other and talking over each other, and they get into fights, and then they go to their separate corners, and we just don't talk for a while. That's how it's been. And maybe I can have a productive conversation with these Catholics over on Matt Frad's page. I don't mean them any ill will. I might be kind of blunt. They might be sneering at me here and there. Maybe we can have a productive conversation. I hope so in any event. It has led to some valuable rabbit trails and rabbit holes, and I'll keep on updating you as I find more out that I think you would be interested in. Speaking of disputes about the Bible and how we should read it, I want to talk with you about something that's just been camping out on my browser, open tabs that I've just left open to bring up in a podcast for weeks now about the so-called Passion Translation of the Bible. If you haven't heard of it, I'm happy for you. I found out about it somewhat by accident, perhaps my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, sent a little meme with poking fun at various translations, so-called, some of them, and various paraphrases of the Bible. He sent the meme to the Three Amigos Signal Group, and in it... This meme, very funny. I enjoyed it tremendously. I still enjoy it tremendously. You have the NIV as a panel. There are four panels. NIV is the caption under Rex from Toy Story. Looking very happy, but also definitely a plastic toy dinosaur. That's the NIV. Then there's the Message Bible. And it looks like a five-year-old, maybe a seven-year-old, was trying to draw a dinosaur with... Uh, marker. And it's pretty rough. It's it's rough stuff, but that's the Message Bible for you. Uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message Bible, which is not a translation, by the way, keep that in mind. It's not a translation. It is a paraphrase, and very honestly, a paraphrase of the Bible. He doesn't pretend that it's a translation. It's more of a devotional thing. I'm going to put these verses in different words as I am reading and understanding, but it's not scripture in the sense of it's not word for word. It's not a word for word translation of the original text into English. Then you've got the NASB, right? The NASB is not a toy dinosaur, and it's not a marker uh, attempt at drawing a dinosaur by a five-year-old or a seven-year-old, if we're feeling generous. Uh, Here in the NASB panel is the Tyrannosaurus Rex from the original Jurassic Park film, roaring in that scene where... He first gets out of the enclosure and it's all rainy and there's the park jeep or whatever it is in the background with the lights on, roaring, you know, here is the unleashed word of God, the New American Standard Bible, NASB. And then the fourth and final panel for this meme is the passion in quotations because it's not regarded as an actual translation. Passion Translation And here you apparently have like a two-year-old who just took crowns of various colors and just scribbled all over the page. And it doesn't look like anything except for a two-year-old doing some scribbling with some crowns. And so I'm like, well, what is this passion translation? Right? What is this? I've never heard of the passion translation. And that, again, with the rabbit holes, that led me into doing some internetting. And thank you, internet. I was able to find the website for. Thepassiontranslation.com, and they have a page that is verse comparisons. This page has a number of passages that are selected that you can tab through the Passion Translation, so called the King James Version, the New International Version, that is NIV, New Living Translation, which is NLT, or the ESV, which is the English Standard Version. That's the version that I read, that's the version I prefer. NASB, ESV, pretty much on par with each other, although the phrasing is a little bit different from one to the other. Some people find ESV harder to understand or harder to read. I prefer ESV going back to an Old Testament literature class that I took in college at Cedarville University. My Old Testament professor said as he was going to rabbinical school to get a doctorate, I think it was, in Hebrew, Biblical Hebrew, He said it was the most faithful word-for-word, not thought-for-thought, but word-for-word translation of the English Bible in our day. The best scholarship, the best, most ancient, most complete texts had been poured over. This was the best that we have so far. But I'll just read for you Psalm 23 in the side-by-side, so you get an idea. I want to give you a little bit of... A heads up on this Passion Translation or anything like this, just with regards to Psalm 23. In the ESV, you'll recognize, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Well put, David. Thank you for the psalm. And that's how it reads in the ESV. Simple to the point. And this is what the best texts agree is what Psalm 23 says in the Hebrew, faithfully translated into English. How does it read in the Passion Translation? Here we go. The Lord is my best friend. We're off to a great start. The Lord is my best friend and my shepherd. I always have more than enough. He offers a resting place for me in his luxurious love. His tracks take me to an oasis of peace, the quiet brook of bliss. That's where he restores and revives my life. He opens before me pathways to God's pleasure and leads me along in his footsteps of righteousness so that I can bring honor to his name. Lord, even when your path takes me through the valley of deepest darkness, fear will never conquer me, for you already have. You remain close to me and lead me through it all the way, Your authority is my strength and my peace. The comfort of your love takes away my fear. I'll never be lonely, for you are near. You become my delicious feast, even when my enemies dare to fight. You anoint me with the fragrance of your Holy Spirit. You give me all I can drink of you until my heart overflows. So why would I fear the future? For your goodness and love pursue me all the days of my life. Then afterward, when my life is through, I'll return to your glorious presence to be forever with you. Did you spot the difference? Did you could you tell? (laughs) Could you uh could you tell that that was any different? Any any this is like the highlights for kids magazine. You know, spot the differences. You know, it's almost like, oh, geez, what's the same? You know, it's much longer. It, there's much more that is added to gild the lily and that's how i would describe it is gilding the lily and being very emotional very emotivist and needing this a lot of people prefer that way of talking about god and talking about the bible and they would prefer this kind of a uh, liturgy and actually honestly as i'm reading this so called translation the passion As I'm reading it out loud, I'm just thinking to myself about those few rare instances where I've been in a church where the pastor, so-called, was a woman, and how she conducts a service, how she speaks from the pulpit. It's very odd, right? It's very, very odd. I've heard it likened here recently to a dog standing on two legs, walking around on two legs. You know, it looks awkward, but you're just amazed that the dog can do it at all, and And it's like that with regards to women who step into the pulpit and become pastors and they're ordained. You know, it's very awkward. It's very weird. And you're amazed that they're doing it at all because the starting point is to downplay and reject the authority of what the Apostle Paul writes when he says that an overseer must be the husband of one wife, that is to say a man. That's pretty open and shut. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That's pretty open and shut. And that's not just in the case of pastoral office within the church. That's whatever you want to call her. You can call her something else. Paul doesn't explicitly say, I don't permit a woman to be a pastor, but you can have her teach and have authority over men in your congregation as long as you call her something else. As long as you call her manager or director or executive or whatever, you know, you can Just have her be a guest, right? Yeah, just, she's just a guest speaker and she circulates around like a old time revival preacher and and do it that way. You know, yeah, that'll, that'll work. No, Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. But back to the passion translation, so-called translation, it's not a translation. So again, kind of like with a woman being ordained a pastor in the first place, you're off to a bad start. (laughs) You're already lying. (laughs) From the jump, before you say anything, (laughs) your starting point has been to throw out the authority of Scripture, even as you're going to ascend to the pulpit and teach us Scripture, apparently. Uh, Back to the ESV reading of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David doesn't say anything about the Lord being his best friend here. That doesn't mean that the Lord isn't his best friend, but that's not the language used. And there is something dangerous about filling in the blanks with whatever we think would be new and improved. And that's the real danger, I think, is when we come to the biblical text and we say, we can do better. Yeah, let me help God along because this isn't getting through to people today. Let's just dress it up. Let's add things. It's as bad to add things to the biblical text as it is to take things away. It really is. You're not supposed to add to or take away from the book. In fact, all of the curses of this book, at least the book of Revelation, but some people, lots of Christians believe that's in reference to the whole of canon, the whole of scripture, but it's at least in the case of Revelation. Anybody who adds to or takes away the words of the book of Revelation is said to have all of the curses come on them specifically. That's not a place you want to be. So you shouldn't be, right? You shouldn't be just adding to the text. Now, if you want to write some journal entries or in the margins, your own notes and say, you know, here are some things that occur to me as I'm reading what God's word actually says. Make sure that you put these in different categories and that you're not doing the opposite of the Bereans. And that's the big concern here is this is the opposite of being a Berean about it, to add things to the text. And then lo and behold, ha, ah, see what I found? I found this in the text. Yeah, but you put that there. Oh, yeah. you know. And oh, by the way, before we move on to the Wikipedia, just a tiny little bit of the Wikipedia entry on the Passion Translation, so-called, but it's not a translation. This just goes to show that it's not selective. When Protestants have a five centuries-long and counting dispute with Roman Catholics over what should and shouldn't be in the biblical text or how we approach the biblical text, it's not unique to, particular to, Protestants versus Catholics. As in, we don't take this position just because we're anti-Catholic. That's absurd. This kind of a thing crops up. The Passion Translation, so-called, but it's not a translation, crops up. And even if the person who's putting it forward or the people who are cheering it on and saying, this is really great and fantastic, and you should get one and study it and read it every day, have this be your Bible that you do your devotions in. If all of the parties concerned are professing Protestants, this is still a big problem for Protestants. (laughs) Like We're like, no, no, don't do not do that, right? Don't do that to the biblical text. And so I think that works in the favor of the integrity of us as Protestants, that we're not just rebels without a cause in relation to the Roman Catholic Church. There are significant disagreements, longstanding disagreements, again, five centuries of disagreement between Protestants and Catholics. God knows who are his, I trust. And also God knows, this is not a translation, by the way, if I haven't made that clear yet, Before we move on, though, the Passion Translation Wikipedia entry gives us this brief summary. The Passion Translation, TPT, is a modern English translation, no it's not, of the New Testament and of an increasing number of books from the Hebrew Bible. The entire TPT Bible is slated for completion in 2028. It was first published in 2017 by Fivefold Media, although the current publisher is Broad Street Publishing the lead translator. No, he's not is Brian Simmons in January, 2022. The passion translation, not a translation was removed from Bible gateway. Good job, babe. <laughs> good, good job. Bible gateway. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Cause it's not a translation. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> was removed from Bible gateway, a popular Bible reading website. The translation still remains available on you version and logos Bible software. And, Maybe we should write to those guys and say, "Hey um why right why 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 are you the way that you are?" <clears throat> skipping on down though, let's go to the criticism section, and this is important not just to be critical for being critical's sake any more than to be violent for violence's sake, but because there is an appropriate application of criticism when something is uh, untoward, when it smells funny, when it's uh, going to make you sick uh, really <clears throat> Wikipedia's criticism heading reads as follows. The Passion Translation has received very mixed reviews. Pastor Bill Johnson praised the translation, no it's not, as, quote, one of the greatest things to happen with Bible translation, not a translation, in my lifetime, end quote. However, many pastors and denominations reject the translation. That is no translation. (sighs) Pastor Andrew Wilson writes, quote, the Passion Translation inserts all kinds of concepts, words, and ideas of which the original gives no hint whatsoever. This example comes from the promotional website in Galatians 2.19. Hina, theo, zeso, which simply means that I might live for God has been translated as so that I can live for God in heaven's freedom. To be clear, there's no indication whatsoever in the Greek of that sentence or the rest of the chapter that either heaven or its freedom are in view in this text. It's not a translation, it's an interpolation, or a gloss, or more bluntly, an addition, end quote. Mark Ward stated that the, quote, passion translation is a paraphrase calling itself a translation. This I find troubling, end quote. Me too, buddy. Me too. Andrew G. Sheed does not consider the passion translation to be a Bible and stated, quote, any church that treats it as such and receives it as canon will by that very action, turn itself into an unorthodox sect. If the translation had been packaged as a commentary on scripture, I would not have needed to write this review. But to package it as scripture is an offense against God. Every believer who is taught to treat it as the inscripturated words of God is in spiritual danger, not least because of the sentimentalized portrait of God that TPT Psalms sets out to paint. Simmons' caricature of God as the king who likes and enjoys you eliminates all but one facet of God's feelings about us and then gets that one wrong. (laughs) End quote. Well said, right? Well said. Don't be critical of everything all the time. That's not healthy. That's being contentious. But there are times to contend for the faith—this is one of them—on the question of biblical authority and biblical accuracy and biblical inerrancy— biblical infallibility, that's where you should stand your ground. Do your homework. Do your research. Be a Berean about it. Study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But when it's time to contend, contend. Roll up your sleeves, men, in particular, and contend for the faith. This is one of those places where we need to. Speaking of Contention and contending, though. Bob Unruh, over at WND, published a piece November 8th, so just four days ago, titled UN Commissioner Claims Israel Doesn't Have Right to Self-Defense. The subtitle reads, says Charter Requires a Pass for Hamas Home in Gaza. As Unruh writes, Quote, an official commissioner inside the United Nations is using semantics to claim that Israel has no right of self-defense against the home of the Hamas terrorists who butchered 1,400 innocent civilians during an invasion on October 7th. It is Francesca Albanese in the office for the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights as a special rapporteur for Palestinians who has argued semantics. Oh, by the way, I'm not anti-Semitic, but I am anti-semantics. It's okay right? It's okay to be anti-semantics. Don't get the two mixed up. Uh, Unruh. She claims self-defense has a narrow meaning under Article 51 of the U.S. Charter, probably U.N. Charter, actually, and that it does not give the Jewish state the right to defend itself against the home of the Hamas terrorists who invaded and slaughtered 1,400 civilians. Have we mentioned that, oh, by the way, they murdered and terrorized and raped and kidnapped at least 1,400 civilians. A reporter at the Washington Free Beacon explains Albanese believes the definition requires the threat to come from another state, and since she claims Hamas comes from an occupied territory, Israel's defense of its own citizens is a crime. Quote, under Article 51, use of force in hashtag self-defense is permissible solely to repel an armed attack by another state, end quote, Albanese claimed, quote, Threats from armed groups from within occupied territory give state the right to protect itself, all caps, but not to wage war against the state from which the armed group emanates, end quote. Now, if you'll note here, again, this is semantics, and we should be anti-semantics, but not anti-Semitic. This is being a bit of a weasel about it. For one, because Iran has... Funded and encouraged Hamas for a long, 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 long time. Hamas could go somewhere else. But here's the problem the two state solution will never work. The two state will never work because one side, the Hamas side, the Hezbollah side, the Iranian backed side, including but not limited to Iran, believes in the extermination of the Jews in Palestine and Israel. Although, look at how many Jews live in Palestine, by the way, versus how many Arabs live in Israel. That tells you quite a lot. There are a lot of very successful Arabs who live in Israel. And do any Jews, if they're not kidnapped and hold back to uh, Gaza or the Palestinian territories, do any Jews live in those places? No. no not if they're wise, and not for long if they're unwise. This is lame. This is super lame, super ridiculous, and shame on the United Nations, shame on Francesca Albanese for putting forward this kind of nonsense. If it happened that, say, for instance, in Ukraine, you had some territories that were formerly part of Russia, and the people there speak Russian, and now, or now it's disputed, but Relatively recently, they were considered part of the Ukraine if Russia put a whole bunch of money and weapons and ammunitions and encouragement into the Russian-speaking people who live in Ukraine to rise up against their government and throw it off and tear it down and make Ukraine all part of Russia again. You wouldn't say Ukraine has no right to self-defense, has no right to fight back against those insurgents in their own backyard. You wouldn't say that. That would be completely ridiculous. Now, that isn't, just like with so many other things we've been talking about in this episode, that isn't to say that it's all or nothing, right? You either totally defend yourself and kill everything that moves over there indiscriminately, which is not what Israel is doing, by the way, but that is what Hamas is happy to do, as they demonstrated on October 7th, but it's not either, on the other hand, where you just say, okay, we'll just sit here. We'll sit here and you come and kill us. Please make it quick. You know, it's not all or nothing. But then the people who are apologizing for Hamas and who are saying that this is needing to be contextualized, I think they're the same kind of people who produce and sponsor and praise. A, so-called translation that's not a translation at all of the Bible. That's really a paraphrase, and it's really just adding things in. Just like the Passion Translation is not a translation, and it is presenting a false view of God and a false view of the Bible by passing itself off as a translation, so also this kind of an argument claims to be super nuanced and very sophisticated and very academic and very concerned with international law. No, this is concerned with being conciliatory towards the Muslim world, towards Iran, towards Hamas, and trying to whack Israel over the head as they're trying to defend themselves, trying to rob them of public support when they need it most, and that is to go after terrorists. Just because they're not actually a separate country, that doesn't mean that you don't have the right to go and fight and kill them. If a whole bunch of terrorists have come across the border with Mexico here in the US. And they're just waiting in various American cities. And a lot of experts are saying this is probably the case. We should expect that if we get into a war with Iran, these sleeper cells are gonna be activated and they're gonna carry out mass casualty events. They're gonna carry out the type of attacks on Americans in American cities that they just conducted in Israel a little over a month ago. That will not work, this paradigm that well, you can't actually fight back against these people because they don't have a country. (laughs) that's, That's ridiculous. That's absurd on its face. And you need to know that that's absurd. And speaking of the difference between contending and being contentious, it is contentious if you're just fighting everybody all the time for any reason or no reason whatsoever because you love violence. If you love violence for violence's sake, shame on you and you are a villain. You're a bad person. And you have what's coming to you, which is death and judgment. After that comes the judgment, but to contend and to protect innocent life against would-be murderers and rapists, torturers, kidnappers, to protect with deadly force, that is not being contentious. And we have to know the difference. We just have to. One thing that makes it very difficult for us in this day and age to know the difference, particularly in a specific actionable case like Israel defending itself or doing something that's unlawful, immoral, as is being claimed, as is being alleged and has been alleged since the beginning, right? (laughs) Since the beginning, that has been the contention from the folks who were angry that Israel became a country in the first place and then continues to be a country. How dare they? How dare they continue existing? Those jerks. One thing that makes it very difficult is how very often the corporate news media covers these things. And this has been true for decades as well. Over at allsides.com, there's a headline roundup from just the day before yesterday with the question, did news agencies use photos from pro-Hamas journalists in coverage of Israel attacks? Here's the summary. A report this week suggested that sources, including the New York Times, Lean Left Bias, Associated Press, Lean Left Bias, and Reuters, Center Bias, used photos from freelancers embedded with Hamas during the October 7 attacks on Israel. Pro-Israel media watchdog Honest Reporting, not rated, focused on photographer Hassan Eslaia and how AP used Ezlaia's photos of Hamas attacking Israel. Honest Reporting published a photo of Eslaia with a Hamas leader and asked, is it conceivable to assume that journalists just happened to appear early in the morning at the border without prior coordination with the terrorists? AP and CNN, lean left bias cut ties with Islayah following the report, but didn't specify why. Key quotes here. First, these journalists were accomplices in crimes against humanity. Their actions were contrary to professional ethics, said Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office. In response, here was a statement from the Times, quote, it is reckless to make such allegations, putting our journalists on the ground in Israel and Gaza at risk, end quote. How did the media cover it, left-rated sources highlighted statements from the sources in question denying that they had prior knowledge of the attacks or embedded journalists with Hamas. Right-rated sources often framed the sources' use of photos from the freelancers as unethical and questioned why the freelancers didn't notify authorities or news outlets of the attacks ahead of time. Why the difference? Some, especially on the right, believe major news sources are unwilling to frame Hamas negatively. Yes. Uh... I, I, I'll raise my hand. Yes. That's, <laughs> I, I believe that. <laughs> Read more about ideological divisions over Israel and Palestine. And they have a link there to another page over at allsides.com, an excellent resource. I've been using it for several weeks now, and I've found it very useful. But just understand this, that there's an excellent, excellent question with regards to ethics. When you are relying on the statements and photos and videos of people who have been embedded with Hamas, who are right there as the action is happening, they are on the ground with Hamas as Hamas is going in and doing these things. And why didn't they tip off the authorities? Could it possibly be because for decades, there's been a strong bias among many in the West? for the Hamas narrative, for the Palestinian narrative, for the Muslim Arab narrative surrounding Israel. Everything Israel does, even just existing in the first place, is bad. This reminds me of a meme, by the way. I'll share with you another meme. I came across this one. Years ago, it was some e-cards, someecards.com. It's a little girl looking like Shirley Temple eating a sandwich, and the caption reads, Once you hate someone, everything they do is offensive. Look at that bitch eating those crackers like she owns the place, (laughs) right? That's what it is, right? There's been for decades from the inception of Israel as a modern nation state, there's been a bias against Israel for even existing in the first place. And then everything that they do, everything that they say is hateful and responded to critically. And that's where you see the difference between contending and being contentious. The default de facto posture of the Arabs in the Middle East towards Israel is animus. It is contentious. And this does go back long before the current conflict. It goes back all the way to when Sarai said to Abram, here, have my Egyptian handmaiden Hagar and get a son by her. It goes all the way back to Ishmael taunting Isaac. And Sarai saying, put her away, send her away and her son. That woman and her son are not going to share this space with us. You, you, this is all your fault. Well, it was her idea in the first place. Let's just remember that. But what did Abraham do? He sent her away and God did watch over and protect Hagar and Ishmael and did make a great nation, many nations out of the descendants of Ishmael, but they don't get along. The descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac do not get along, and it is at the core a contention between the children of the promise, on the one hand, the descendants of Isaac and Jacob, who was renamed Israel, and that's where the modern nation-state gets its name, and the descendants of Ishmael, who are now the Arabs, they're now the Muslim world, even when they're not all Arabs, even when they're not all descendants of Ishmael, by birth, they are spiritually his descendants. And Similarly, we're the spiritual descendants as Christians and Jews of Abraham, so to speak, at least the Christians are, maybe not all the Jews when they reject Messiah, but that doesn't mean that it's okay, right? That doesn't mean this is where the anti-Semites in the West go way off the rails and they get it completely wrong. It doesn't mean that it's okay, whatever happens to the Jewish people, whatever happens to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God says, those who bless Israel he will bless. Those who curse Israel, he will curse. We see in the case of Second Samuel chapter 5, God is with David. Why? Why is that? Why is God with David? Because of his people Israel. For the sake of his people Israel, God exalts the kingdom of David. The more God blesses Israel, the modern nation state, I believe, the angrier and more resentful and more bitter it makes those surrounding Arab nations that are not so happy that the nation exists in the first place. It's a thorn in their side. You look at the size of Israel. It's this tiny little country in an ocean, a tiny little island of Jews in an ocean of Muslims, in an ocean of Arabs. And it's not to say you hate the Arabs either, but it is to say, call balls and strikes and don't take for granted that the media reporting, the media coverage is objective because Very often, it's not. Very often, it's just the public relations wing of these terrorists who hate us as Americans, by the way, every bit as much and sometimes more as they hate Israel because we're the reason that Israel continues to exist and continues to be able to hold out against determined enemies, relentless, ruthless enemies like Hamas. But you may wonder what about the neighboring countries, the countries which are on Israel's borders. What countries border Israel? And why don't the Palestinians just, oh, I don't know, move to those countries? If Israel is so awful, why don't they just go somewhere else? You've got Egypt to the Southwest. You've got Jordan to the East. You've got Lebanon to the North. You've got Syria also to the North, but then Northeast, North by Northeast, you might say. Why don't the Palestinian Arabs just go to those other countries. Well, about that, and it's a long story, uh, the short answer is I'll play for you this next clip. (laughs) And once I've played it, I'll offer some commentary. But this is King Abdullah II of Jordan talking about the idea of Palestinian refugees being welcomed into Jordan or Egypt for that matter. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. Just a part of the question on the issues of refugees coming to Jordan. And I think I can quite strongly speak on behalf not only of um, 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 uh, Jordan as a nation, but of uh, our friends in Egypt. That is a red line. Uh, because I think that is the plan by certain of the usual suspects to try and create de facto issues on the ground. No refugees in Jordan. No refugees in Egypt. Ah, okay. So then. So then... <clears throat> No refugees, no refugees in Jordan also, no refugees in Egypt. So that's two out of the four countries basically saying mm, no. And that's most of the border. To the south, you have Egypt or Jordan. And given that we're talking about territory for the Palestinian Arabs who don't want to live in Israel per se, that's... Where they would go, that's what's right next door. Otherwise, they would have to travel through Israeli territory to get to Lebanon or to get to Syria. But why, right? Why say no refugees is it possibly because there's a concern for terrorism? Is there possibly a concern that the same kinds of folks, Hamas, who do the sorts of things that happened on October 7th to Israeli men, women, and children— those same kinds of folks, if they don't like Egypt's government, if they don't like Jordan's government, they would do those kinds of things to the Egyptians. They would do those kinds of things to the Jordanians. Yes, that's part of it. Another part of it, and this goes way back, and it's not a monolith. It's not as though everybody who has been in the ruling class or governing the countries immediately bordering Israel has had the exact same Attitude, But going way back, another reason has been that the surrounding Arab countries didn't want to let the Palestinian Arabs out of Israel because they wanted to leave them as a thorn in the side of Israel in hopes that someday Palestinian Arabs claiming victimhood, claiming to be so persecuted and oppressed, would bring pressure to bear from the international community exactly as has been happening. What they've been wanting is exactly what has been happening. And you wonder to yourself, well, why does it work? Well, for one thing, the Western nations, in many cases, especially post World War II, welcomed quite a lot of economic migrants, as they're known, from North Africa and the Middle East to move into Europe to replace native Europeans who had been killed in the war, who were needed to rebuild Europe to build up the manufacturing capability of Europe. That's part of it. They brought a lot of Middle Easterners to Europe and the Middle Easterners who've moved to Europe and they've retained their Islamic faith and their Arabic culture, just like when many Arabs, many Muslims move to the US, they get all worked up, they get all upset anytime there is an incident regarding Israel, say, for instance, Israel's attacked and Israel defends itself and retaliates and goes after the people responsible or preemptively strikes, say, with targeted killings, for instance, basically assassinations by another name. Dearborn, Michigan, I'm looking at pictures right here from Edward Teach's post at Not the Bee from October 17th, so a mere 10 days after the attacks by Hamas on Israelis, I'm looking at the picture here, and it's a long parade with a lot of Palestinian Arab flags and a lot of people, and the signs being held up at the front of this parade protest talk about resistance. Basically, Dearborn, Michigan, very large Muslim population there, they stand with Hamas. They're inclined to say Hamas is the victim. They're just retaliating. They're just trying to get their independence. Now, they don't want their independence. They want the eradication of the Jews in Palestine. They want to reclaim what had formerly been Muslim land. They want to destroy Israel. They don't want independence. They don't want their freedom. They're enslaved to hatred for the Jews, hatred for Israel. How about London, though? London, as an example, in Europe, the downtown London streets From the sky above, probably a helicopter or drone photography of this march in the streets of London, it's a lot of people. It is a lot, a lot of people. And you can see the Palestinian colors being flown even from way up hundreds and hundreds of feet in the air. You can see that they're holding a banner going back hundreds of feet into the crowd. March in support of Hamas terrorists on the streets of London. Mr. Sinha posted to X, formerly known as Twitter, not Twitter anymore. London is doomed. It looks more like it's Islamic than Arab countries. But then Arab countries have these kinds of demonstrations in the street as well, maybe to a lesser extent, depending on what the event is. But the Western countries, Europe, is filled with Muslims. Many European countries are filled with Muslims. Large portions of France are now majority Muslim. And the UK is not doing so hot. Mohammed was the most popular name for newborn baby boys in Ireland, for instance. I believe it was last year. Mohammed is what couples are naming their kids because they're Muslim couples, because the Muslim couples are having kids and the Europeans are not. So then why the demonstrations? Put simply, this applies pressure on Western governments to not be too supportive of Israel. Don't get too carried away. Or else what? We might get a little stabby. We might get a little (laughs) tricker happy. We might carry out some random acts of violence against your native populace. Essentially, the terrorism works if the West backs off and says, "Okay, Israel, you know, you heard them. We've got a little bit of a trouble On our hands too, you know, it's you're not the only ones. Unacceptable. It's unacceptable. It has to come due at a certain point. The bill comes due. The chickens come home to roost, and this has to be confronted. In the meantime, it won't be. Uh, Quite simply, it won't be. Not until, and I hate to say this, and I'm not calling for it, I'm not hoping for it. I'm actually very concerned about it. Not until Hamas and other Iranian-backed Terrorist groups start carrying out attacks on Western countries that have supported Israel, like were waged, like were launched on October 7th against Israel. Not until that happens are you going to have Westerners waking up to the realization that, hey, listen, this is a, a big problem. But even then, I'm not 100% sure that that would be enough for the diehard left leaning critical race theory believing social justice secularists. They really, really believe because they were brainwashed into it from K through 12 and then on up into higher education. They were brainwashed into believing this oppressor versus oppressed classification system. And they're going to continue on believing that the terrorists are actually the victims so long as the terrorists are positioning themselves opposite Western civilization, opposite a more successful, more prosperous Europe and. United States and Israel. The critical race theorists, the radical leftists, their sympathizers, they're only going to get to be greater in number. And the folks who know better or they're not quite sure that all adds up, they're going to get either silenced, quieted for fear of losing their jobs, for fear of physical violence against them, for fear of being shunned and losing their friends or their family. Family not talking to them anymore because there is this comprehensive wall-to-wall contextualizing of these things to present the West in the worst possible light as the oppressor, and it's ironic. It's, It's rich, really. Is it possible that the people who are doing very poorly economically and socially and their physical health is not so good either and their nutrition is not so good and their public services are not up to par Is it possible that that is maybe just maybe in part due to, you know, the fact that they take all of the aid and they funnel it into launching murderous attacks against the people they hate? Maybe they're so consumed with hate that they just don't spend the time building up their own patch of land, their own communities. Have we thought of that? Well, no, no, you're not supposed to think of that because now you're blaming the victim because it's a foregone conclusion, because the presupposition won't even let you have any credibility to talk back and forth. And that's, again, why we need to be able to reason with one another. We need to be able to cross-examine. If we don't have that, well, then it's just a countdown. It's a countdown to critical mass of Islamists and radical leftists, which will get to be a greater and greater share of the population here in the U.S. and across the pond in Europe with each passing year and decade Unless Westerners start getting married in a serious way, having lots of children, homeschooling those children, (laughs) hello, give them a classical Christian education or send them to a private school where they're going to get a classical Christian education. Unless we start doing that in a big way, it's just a question of how many years do we have? How many decades do we have? This is terminal. But I hope that that's not the case. I hope it's not terminal. I don't want there to be a bloodbath. I don't want there to be World War Three, but then, can it be avoided? Is this just what it is? This is a consequence of the beliefs that we have embraced about ourselves, about God, about one another, about the world that we live in. If you don't see people willing to change their underlying assumptions about the nature of man and the nature of God and why God has put us here and what our purpose is, then I would say you're not going to see a shift in. The kinds of decisions that people are making and so then it's just all right are we on a collision course maybe we haven't collided yet in a big way in european countries although there have been some big collisions say in france for instance some major major disruptions in the country of france but maybe there haven't been enough to really get the attention of the west just yet there haven't been here in america enough to get our attention Once that changes, if that changes here in the coming months or the coming years, then maybe we start to look to deport people who line up with Hamas, line up with terrorists, as we should. Hey, if you don't want to fight here, please go back to the country that you came from. If you believe that the terrorists are right and that we're wrong, if you believe that we're evil and those guys are good, join them, please. We will arrange your travel. If you're willing to behave and not (laughs) threaten uh, our death and destruction, then, okay, maybe we can continue having this conversation and this economic uh, activity between one another. We can continue living together peaceably, but you you can't have both. You're going to have to pick one. For our last link, though, before we wrap up, I draw your attention to Aaron Wren's weekly digest titled A Flock of Demons, from October 20th of this year over at AaronRen.com. He's got a section here, Best of the Web, that he put this little gem from the New York Times into an article titled, U.S. Army, Navy, and Air Force Struggle for Recruits, the Marines Have Plenty. And here's a quote from that article. Thank you to Aaron Wren for sharing this. It's been a few weeks, but thank you all the same. Military leaders say there are so few Americans who are willing and able to serve and so many civilian employers competing for them that getting enough people into uniform is nearly impossible. Tell that to the Marines. The Marine Corps ended the recruiting year on September 30th, having met 100% of its goal with hundreds of contracts already signed for the next year. The Corps did it while keeping enlistment standards tight and offering next to no perks. When asked earlier this year about whether the Marines would offer extra money to attract recruits, the Commandant of the Marine Corps replied, Your bonus is that you get to call yourself a Marine. That's your bonus. In a nutshell, that is the Marine Corps' marketing strategy. Dismiss financial incentives as chump change compared with the honor of joining the Corps. Brush off the idea of military service as a stepping stone to civilian career opportunities. Instead, Dangle the promise of the chance to be part of something intangible, timeless, and elite. Now, again, thank you, Aaron Wren, for sharing that with us, finding it, and presenting it. I don't read the New York Times. Otherwise, maybe I would have found it myself. But this is the next best thing because this is good stuff. This is how we should be approaching the Purpose and Belonging competition and what i mean by that is that the left is keeping people enthralled to wrong-headed ideas say for instance about climate say for instance about marriage say for instance about your human nature in general say for instance about the role of government in your life or how the economy actually functions also they're keeping people enthralled to bad ideas about oppressor and oppressed because they offer purpose and belonging. Here a few months ago, I had an opportunity to attend a Winsome Ministries event in Fort Collins, Colorado, wherein one of the speakers was the House Minority Leader for the state of Colorado, Republican from roundabout these parts. And he was explaining why it is that the Democrats are so successful when it comes to recruiting people into their organizations, their political action movements. He said they basically, in having by and large rejected God, have, and forgive me, this is cliche, but this is what he said, they have a God-shaped hole in their hearts. And you might also call it a virtue tank. So they have an empty virtue tank and they feel it. They feel as though there's an importance to being virtuous. And to doing things and being a part of things that make them feel virtuous. They want to feel good. They want to feel like they're a part of something that is doing good in the world. And so along come Democrats. And they make special recruiting efforts to target college students who are enrolled in political science programs. And they say, hey, come and help with our campaign. Come and help us to knock on doors, pass out brochures and flyers and pamphlets help us get people signed up to vote help us to get out the vote for our candidates and so the college students do just that they say okay great yeah i'm kind of of that persuasion anyways and i don't have anything else going on and so they come out and next thing you know the next year rolls around and they say hey you did really good last year would you be willing to move up you know move up into more of a managing and facilitating and coordinating role in this next election cycle. And so these young college students, maybe they've graduated, maybe they're still in school. They say, oh yeah, uh, sure, sure, I, uh, you bet. And there's a prestige that comes with that and they get to feeling like they've progressed. And next thing you know, the next year rolls around and they're told, you know, hey, you, you did really good there. Would you be willing to manage a campaign for somebody who is running? You know, it's right in your wheelhouse. You've been taking classes and you've got this degree that you're almost finished with, or you just finished up, and what do you say? And some, not all, but some say, yeah, you bet. I'd love to. And so they manage these campaigns. And then the next year rolls around, the next election cycle rolls around, and the Democratic machine says, you know, hey, you did a really great job managing that campaign. We really appreciate you helping to get our guy elected. What would you think about being a candidate yourself? We'll put you forward and we'll have you run. But then as the House Minority Leader was explaining these young people working for the Democrats, getting put into the pipeline. They don't have any practical life experience. They just have a few years of college and they have college debt, which also might be part of the reason why Democrats are trying to get student loan forgiveness, at least for some we'll see who we can get student loan forgiveness for because it's a way of paying back. It's a way of giving back to those who've helped them get elected as they see it. So, here you go, here's a candidate. And they've got a few years of experience doing the various things that worked up to this. And let's suppose that they get elected and they go off to Denver. And now they're in the state legislature and they are supposed to be writing laws. They're supposed to be doing the work of a lawmaker. And they're young and they maybe have a political science degree, but they have no life experience. They haven't proven their practical skills in any other arena, they haven't had to live really under the laws and under the taxes that now they're going to be helping to pass or to increase or to multiply. But nevertheless, they've been conditioned by the Democrats to believe that this is purpose and belonging. This is how they get to be a part of something bigger than themselves, something more important than themselves. This is the greater good that they're serving. Well, the Marine Corps, on the flip side, in a different way, is a very similar thing, especially for young men who are hungry for some sort of outlet, wherein they will be praised, they will be affirmed, they will be challenged, but then they will also be honored, not by everybody, but then they'll be feared even by those who don't honor them. And that might be just as well, because either way, they're going to be bigger, badder, tougher, stronger, faster, more resilient on the other end. But then they'll never stop being a Marine. That's what they're thinking to themselves. And that's the catchphrase. Once a Marine, always a Marine. You don't ever stop being a Marine. Well, I bring this up in relation to the problem of liberalism and the problem of particularly the virulent, woke, social justice warrior mindset, which has gripped even many in the church. And I think a lot of more conservative Christians and a lot of older conservatives and older Christians generally, even if they don't always overlap, even if it's not always the same people who are the older Christians and the older conservatives politically, who are politically active, a lot of those folks are just not sure at all what to do about these young people who are falling for wokeism. They think, man, this is just nonsense. You know, these kids are having their future destroyed their potential, their capacity to pursue the American dream. But then what are we forgetting? We're forgetting that these young people might just be associating the American dream with the opposite of the virtue that they want to feel they are filling their tank with. They aren't just virtue signaling, although many of them are, and they don't catch it until somebody actually cross examines them. To think of it, you know, wow, somebody cross examining the virtue signaling. But they don't think of themselves as virtue signaling. They think of themselves as actually being virtuous. Or when you have a view of truth as being rather subjective and truth claims being just the will to power, what do you do? When somebody says, I'm going to cross-examine your point of view, you maybe just say, oh, you're trying to assert dominance over me, and you're trying to take away this feeling of virtuousness. This feeling of being a good person, part of something bigger than myself. I don't want the American dream, but what do I want? If I'm a young person falling for the wokeness, what I want is purpose and belonging. I want to feel something. I want to feel as though I have purpose. I do belong somewhere. There are people who welcome me and are glad that I'm there and they need me. I want to feel needed. Okay, listen, conservatives, maybe don't publicly when you get up on the debate stage to debate who's going to be a candidate who's going to be the nominee for the 2024 presidential race. Republicans, when you get up on the stage, maybe don't say to the youngest guy on the stage, you're not old enough, even though constitutionally he very much is. Don't say you're not old enough as though this is an old person's party and this is an old person's task to help make the decisions that we're going to live by in this country. Make the decisions together or oversee the execution of the decisions that we've made together. Maybe don't do that. Maybe don't box out the young people who have this energy, who want to be involved. Maybe come up with a better argument, a different kind of an argument that is not so pejorative and doesn't drive young people to the other party. That's a start. Another place to start would be in saying, we actually have things for you to do as conservative Christians and you're not just playing a reactionary game. You're not just playing a defensive losing game. You're not fighting to lose or rather just waiting until somebody comes and bops you on the head and finishes you off. You're actually doing something and you're actually learning how to fight and you're fighting to win when you do fight. If you need to fight, you don't want to fight. You want to seek peace and pursue it. But then that's part of the reason why you learn to fight is as a deterrence. Ideally the capacity to fight and to win deters aggression from bad actors. And that's another reason that young people, when there's so much insecurity, are going to be drawn to the Marine Corps. The Army Reserves, Army National Guard. I remember sitting down with a recruiter years ago, actually right about the time that my two oldest sons were in diapers. I remember going and meeting with an Army National Guard recruiter, and his being very excited to talk with me and thinking I was just the kind of guy that they would like to have fast tracked to being some kind of an officer. And meanwhile, I'm looking at the guy and he does not look especially fit physically. He's not especially impressive in his way of relating or his demeanor or his posture, his way of talking. And then, oh, by the way, he had a Justin Bieber doll on his desk and his desk was messy. And I just thought, you're not selling it. I don't want to be. (laughs) known for this. I don't want this to be the image that I project. You're going to teach me to be like you. And then people are going to say, that's what they expect. No offense to the army national guard folks, because I'm sure I had a poor sampling, but then the very next recruiter that I went to the same day, just later on in the day was an air force recruiter. And I go and I talk with this guy and he's well put together. His uniform is sharp. His office looks professional. Everything is in its proper place and wiped down and there's no dust anywhere. And I sit down and it's basically a conversation of, hey, listen, if you're not already on a waiting list, you're probably not going to get into the Air Force because there's a lot of people who want into the Air Force and it takes a long time to get in. And let's talk about what your goals are. And so I talk with this guy and I also talk with my brother who was at the time overseas with the Marine Corps. And my brother said, hey, please tell me you're not going to be looking at the Marines, because I think you and the Marines are a bad combination. Why? Because the Marines are all about, you do what you're told. We tell you what to do. You're going to do what you're told. And you, being you, you would be like, but why? But sir, that doesn't make any sense. Dig a hole for no reason. And you're just going to have me fill in the hole tomorrow. And then you're going to have me dig it again. But sir, and it would be all bad. It would be just terrible from there. Well, I told this story to the Air Force recruiter he said, no, listen, that's not how we are, (laughs) Air Force. In the Air Force, basically, you're going to have five officers standing around for two hours talking about exactly how wide and how deep the hole is going to be and what we're going to use to dig that hole. And then what we're going to put in the hole after we're done digging it and when the crew is coming to install the specialty equipment that goes in the hole. And all the while, you're going to be standing around thinking, man, I could have dug four holes in the time that it's taking you guys to plan this one hole where it's going to be and how deep and what goes in it. That's the Air Force. And I just thought to myself in that moment, "Mm, you know, I don't really want to go into either now. Thanks, you know. Thanks, guys. But the Marine Corps, I know my brother being in the Marines, he is still proud of having served in the Marines. Why is that? Because they helped him to get stronger they helped him to get tougher they taught him valuable skills in fact what he does today which is the same thing that i do today which is to say you don't have to go into the marine corps to be able to get you know marketable skills the thing he does today is he's a controls programmer i'm a controls programmer he learned a lot of the skills that helped prepare him to do what he does today in the marines but then that's not why he went in as a matter of fact he went in wanting to be infantry. And then various people said, no, you're an idiot. Don't do that. Here, take this test. Ah, it looks like you're very smart. You're going to be in comms. And so that's what he did. But the point is, what drew him to the Marines specifically was that the Marines have an ethos. Semper Fi, always faithful. The Marines have a reputation. They have a reputation for being, if you'll pardon my language here, badasses. They have a reputation for being tough. And why is that important? Because sometimes it's not about, do you have an eye in the sky? Sometimes it's not a question of, do you have the right intel or the right technology? Sometimes it's a question of, do you have the guts to do what needs to be done and to take the risk that they're going to shoot back at you or they're going to try and kill you right back. But then you're going to kill them even harder because this is war and they're an enemy and innocent lives are on the line if you don't end them, if you don't neutralize them. There is going to be a need for the Marine Corps ethos and mindset. All the more do I realize and appreciate that as I am seeing how so many people are relating to this business in Israel with regards to Hamas. You have a lot of people with all of the military might and the economic wherewithal of the West. You have a lot of people who clearly, are terrified of offending the Muslims who have moved to our countries. And we've been very gracious in allowing them to live here. And you know what? At a certain point, you have to be able to draw a line in the sand and say, no, you don't get to dictate what our policy is and you don't get to chant death to America on our soil or death to whatever the country is, the Western country is, go home. If you're going to be like that, you just go on home or we'll send you home. You need something like the attitude of the Marine Corps. But then you need that in a lot of different applications. You need that in a lot of different directions. It's not unique to this conflict with Israel and So That's just one example. But then even going back to, and I'll finish with this thought, Second Samuel chapter 5. Why is God with David? And why does he exalt David's kingdom? It's for the sake of his people Israel. That's what the text says. Says, verse 12, 2 Samuel chapter 5, David knew that Yahweh had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Why did God do that? God did that because Israel was his people, which is to say that God's name was being made great by Israel doing well because David was serving faithfully. He was serving at a high level the nation of Israel. David knew. God was with him and had established him king over Israel. That little snippet is huge, and it's also hugely undervalued. I joked at the beginning when I was doing some of the commentary on 2 Samuel chapter 5, I joked that (laughs) there's a whole lot of toxic masculinity, good old-fashioned toxic masculinity for you, and David being king, becoming king over Israel, not just over Judah anymore but really, truly, that's just it, right? The script has been flipped. And if we know that the flipped script is bad, is itself toxic, it's a poison pill for young men, for old men, for all of our people, we have to present a counter-narrative, which is all-inclusive for the man who is going to Want an aspirational model, as in, not you're a horrible person and you're awful and you can't do anything right. And we're just waiting until you mess up really badly so we can blame everything on you or the people that you're responsible for. Whenever they mess up, we'll blame everything on you. You have a responsibility, but no authority. We don't actually respect you. We don't actually make you stronger. We don't actually try to equip you for this thing. Get away from that and tell young men that they find purpose and belonging in God. And that if they are making God's name great, all of their qualities, all of their strengths, all of their giftings, all of their aptitudes, all of their resources, all of their time and their attention can be, one, purposeful, (laughs) not works righteousness. Don't, 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 don't. Don't, come at me with the functional liberalism disguised as good theology. No, thank you. Not works righteousness, but work. There's work to do. Men want work to do that is going to give them a sense of purpose and belonging, and that's going to be rewarding. And of course they would. Of course they would want that. That's why the Marine Corps is not having trouble meeting their recruitment quotas, because it's work that is regarded as profitable, In a comprehensive way, you're going to be tougher, mind, body, and soul. You're going to be stronger. You're going to be faster. You're going to learn how to work together with a team of other guys who are also tough, tough tough-minded, tough in body. We're going to give you tools. We're going to give you skills. We're going to teach you how to work together. We're going to teach you how to accomplish objectives and to be successful. And you know what? you know what young men will say? Even if it kills me, that is what I want. If, if we don't purge it from their psyche or tell them at every turn that to be wired that way means that there's something inherently wrong with them. Because what are we doing in that case? We're rejecting their telos. This is teleological. And what the toxic masculinity folks have gotten wrong is supposing that man, and I mean men especially, males in particular, are inherently toxic. That's the problem. You will not have men opting in to be blamed for everything that they do really poorly or that other people who are around them do poorly and also blamed when they do well because that's the other side of the coin. That's one of the big reasons that A lot of men, a lot of young men have opted out. It's not even that they're bought into the woke nonsense. It's that they're thoroughly demoralized. And if we want them to be remoralized, we're going to have to offer them an aspirational model wherein we say, well done. What is it that Jesus puts forward as an aspirational model for those of his followers who come to the final day and are going to be invited in? You know, there's the one which is not so good, which is terrifying, actually, if you really care about pleasing God and you want Jesus to be glad to see you. (laughs) You know, there's the one where you say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Yeah, you say you did all these things in my name, but I don't know you. That's not what you want to hear. But then what's the other thing that Jesus says? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your place of rest. So then there's this idea that we would tell young men, roll up your sleeves, get after it, work hard, apply yourself, serve God, trust in God, put your hope in God, and apply yourself to, let's say, for instance, loving a wife and children, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving the people in your church. Like Christ loves them. Loving the people in your community because you're seeking the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile. Let's suppose you are in exile and this earth is not your home. Fine, fine. There is a verse for that. You you remember the old commercials? There's an app for that. There's a verse for that. Jeremiah 29, 7. Or how about Micah 6, 8? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. David gets into this position as king over all Israel after serving as king for seven and a half years over only the house of Judah. In the capacity of king over Israel, and before that, king over Judah, and before that, leading hundreds of men who had followed him, 600 men who have followed him over to Ziklag, say, hey, you know what? Our wives and our children are gone. The Amalekites came while we were out following you. We want to kill you. And what does David do? He asks God. He asks God, should we go after the Amalekites? Will you give them into our hand? And God says, yes, you shall surely pursue them and overtake them, and you shall surely rescue. And so he doesn't waste time trying to reason with these guys who are furious and just looking for somebody to take out their anger on. Not that that's going to get their wives and their children back, but, you know, they'll feel a little bit better, at least right up until the moment they kill him, if they're not interrupted, but then they are interrupted. By what? By David asking God, what should I do? And listening. And so then, next thing you know, you've got this situation where 400 men who were in physical shape say, to the 200 who weren't in good enough physical shape, you're not going to get any of the spoils that we took from defeating the Amalekites. And what does David demonstrate? Does he do justice? Does he love mercy? Does he walk humbly with his God? Short answer, yes, because it's not either or. The 200 who weren't in good enough shape still have purpose and belonging. Is that a mercy? It seems to me it is. Going after the Amalekites and getting the wives and the children back from the Amalekites and killing every one of the Amalekites except for the 400 Young men who got away on camels, was that doing justice? Well, yeah, because the penalty for man-stealing, for kidnapping somebody, is death. It's a capital offense. How did he get into a position wherein he was able to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with his God, this David guy? He started out being faithful, tending his father's sheep. He started out being faithful, playing music for King Saul. He started out being faithful bringing food to his brothers who were serving in the army of Israel. And then he just so happened to hear while he was there, Goliath taunting Israel's army, Israel's king, and the living God of Israel. And he was faithful there too. And, and the whole point here, right? The whole point here is not that you're David and your problems are Goliath or your problems are Saul or your problems are ish or your problems are fill in the blank from this Story of his life. But the point is that God's character is unchanged and unchanging, and unchangeable are his purposes. And men, in particular, need to know that there's an aspirational model in relation to an unchanging God whose unchangeable promises bring great blessing. And that is to say, a great profit. This is profitable. If we have told young men that it's only loss, it's only cost. We've done the opposite of motivating them to invest themselves. Actually, we have demoralized them. If we want to remoralize them, it's time to reverse course. They need to have a sense of purpose and belonging, especially in the church, especially in particular in the church. Because where else are they going to be encouraged to study God's word and to apply it, to not just hear what it is that Jesus says? And then carry on, as you were, functional liberal, but to hear what Jesus says and to build their life on it, like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. If you want to engage young men and reach after a fashion, if you want to call it this or think of it like this, something like the equivalent of recruitment quotas, that's the way to do it. But that's also all the time I've got for this episode. I have to run. As always, thank you for listening.